Welcome, my name is David Yoakum, I'm the director of the lab at DC. It's my pleasure to have John Gurian with me today, an associate professor at Northwestern University and also a co-director of the Urban Education Lab. And John, thank you for being here, first of all. My pleasure. What I was hoping that we could touch on is a lot of the work that you've been doing related to crime prevention and violence, which of course this is something that many cities across the country are grappling with and is a priority here in the district as well. But to sort of set the stage, could you maybe start off giving us a little bit of a, a kind of a global picture of what we're seeing in terms of crime trends? Sure. So, you know, I, uh, I'm a professor at Northwestern University, which is near Chicago, and, um, you know, in, in Chicago, as I think is very well known nationally, there's been a, a very distressing and dramatic increase in homicides uh, in 2016 relative to 2015, and that, that increase is, um, you know, something that we haven't seen in a very long time, if, if, if ever. Uh, it, it, has happened at a time when if you look over a slightly longer time period, um, say over the last 20 years or 30 years, um, since the early 1990s, uh, homicide rates in the U.S. have actually declined fairly dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look over an even longer time horizon, say back to 1950, homicide rates in the U.S. are about the same now as they were then. So it sort of depends on the, the horizon. Over a very long period of time, actually haven't made that much progress in reducing uh, violent crime by homicide rates. Um, since 1990, there's been a big dramatic uh, decrease, uh, but you know, recently there's been a very troubling, um, distressing uh, uh, increase, in, in particularly in Chicago. Right. And a lot of the work that you and your colleagues and others have been doing have been starting to try to tackle the question of what do we do about it? Maybe start with some of the work you've been doing on cognitive behavioral therapy and tell us a little bit about sort of what the interventions are and the theory behind them and then maybe we could get into what you've been learning so far about how well they're working. Sure. So um, our work there is motivated by the idea that, um, you know, maybe some violent crime is um, the result of uh, people making uh, decisions in the moment that uh, they might be able to avoid, and it sort of is in contrast to a view of crime that you know there, there's a set of people who are very deeply committed to crime, um, and that the you know by the time they're adolescents or um, young adults, there's sort of not much the policy can do to, to stop them from engaging in crime, and so you know the policy response should maybe be to incarcerate them to stop them from committing. Additional crimes, and you know, it's, you know, it's well known in the U.S. The incarceration rate has increased dramatically since the um, uh, since the early 1970s, about five times as high as it was then. Um, and you know, our work on this idea of cognitive behavioral therapy uh, sort of calls into question that model of, of why people um, uh, commit crimes, and it sort of. Uh, raises the idea that, that part of the reason people commit crimes is because they're uh, in, in the moment, in a, say in an altercation, uh, engage in some behavior, react in some way, that uh, is based on their sort of automatic thinking, their, their reactive thinking, um, something that everybody does in, in different situations and, and sort of needs to, uh, but where 
uh, if they had a, a second to stop and think about the consequences of those actions or alternative ways of, of reacting to that situation, they might make a different decision, which in the long run would be better for them. And cognitive behavioral therapy is a way to help people uh, to understand the types of thought processes that lead to behaviors that they might want to stop, for instance, engaging in violence, um, that might lead to them getting arrested, uh, how the understanding how their thoughts lead to those behaviors and how um, you can practice behaviors that might change those ways of thinking uh, to then in turn uh, lead to different types of behaviors and avoid, right. uh, avoid And you had you had that in the in your talk earlier at the lunch at DC you had this powerful quote from one of the people you were working with around how you know there is some subset of people that um, have a history of of crime and maybe incarceration is probably that for a lot of folks, you might say 80% or something. I don't know if they're probably guessing at some yeah. sort of number. If you could just give back 10 seconds of their life, that sort of flash or something happened in the reaction, that automatic reaction, as you put it, makes all the difference. Yeah, so that, that, that quote came from uh, uh, someone who worked at the juvenile detention center in, in Chicago, works with uh, you know youth who have been arrested and yeah. are incarcerated waiting crime awaiting trial and you know he's basically saying that you know he says you know about 20% of the kids that come to the detention center they're uh, uh, he, he describes them as criminals that they're, they're going to commit crimes and he doesn't know what to do to stop it but that 80% of the kids who he sees uh, in the detention center you know he says to them if I could just give you back 10 seconds of your life you you wouldn't be here, you, you know, things would be a lot different. And it's this idea that, um, you know, people make mistakes and uh, they make mistakes in the moment and if, uh, if only you sort of could stop and think for a second and avoid that, that initial uh, um, thought, that initial, acting on that initial thought, that you could avoid those types of uh, mistakes, avoid violence, and uh, avoid being incarcerated. Right, and here's where cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT comes in as trainings on how to sort of react differently in those 10 second windows. And I think it, I mean, it might be useful to actually give a concrete example of one of the types of trainings that happen. I mean, I know there's a lot of different ones, but could you maybe give one concrete example of the sort of thing individuals in a CBT program do to develop the skill to react differently in those 10 second windows? Sure. So one, one program that we've studied uh, is a program called Becoming a Man or BAM was developed by a social service agency in Chicago called Youth Guidance. And um, it's a program that's uh, based on cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a group-based mentoring program for ninth and 10th grade boys. Uh, happens in school. And the first activity that they do in, uh, in BAM is sort of a good example of uh, the types of things that they do that are both experiential, so helping people like actually experience something to be able to learn it, but are also based on cognitive behavioral therapy as a way to help change people's thinking um, to change their behavior. So the activity is called the fist exercise, and it's on the first day of the program. They, uh, the kids come into the program, into the classroom, and there's a counselor, about 12 ninth grade boys, ninth or 10th grade boys and a counselor. And the counselor uh, pairs them up. And within each pair, you know, uh, assigns one kid to be person number one and one kid to be person number two. And he says, 
Uh, all right, so person number one, I want you to put your hand into a fist. And person number two, I want you to open up his fist. Uh, other than that, there are no rules. You have 30 seconds, begin. And the kids uh, go, and they, it gets, typically gets fairly rough. Kids are trying to pry each other's hands open. Sometimes they, there's fists thrown. Uh, 30 seconds go by and they stop and then the counselor says, okay, now reverse. Now person two, put your hand in the fist. Person one, uh, try and get it open. And they go ahead and the same thing happens. And it's, you know, they're ninth and 10th grade boys and so it's maybe not that surprising that in a situation like this where it's physical and there are no rules that it gets somewhat uh, aggressive. And then at the end of the, 30, the second 30 seconds, they, uh, the counselor sort of stops them and says, okay, who, who's anybody able to get the fist open and maybe one or two, and then asks them, what, what strategies did you try? And you know, kids will say, well, I tried to you know, distract him by hitting him there and then pull really hard on his fingers. Uh, and then the counselor eventually says, well, did anybody ask your partner to open up his fist? And Sometimes that's happened, but usually nobody tries that. And the, then he asks, why not? And they say some version of, you know, he would have thought I was a punk or he would have thought I was a wimp or something like that. And so then the counselor says, well, how do you know what he would have thought? And so, because I know. And then they use that as a way to get the kids to understand the difference between what you can actually observe and know versus what assumptions you're making about how other people are thinking. And then they use that as a way to get the kids to think about how they assess social situations and people's, um, you know, whether people are being hostile to them or not in a certain situation. Um, and so that's a way that, that sort of opens up a discussion about cognition, about thinking, uh, social cognition, thinking about interactions, situations, and, um, uh, you know, how you can interpret things that other people are thinking or not. And, and also about assumptions that you might make which might not be right. And the, the, how those assumptions can sometimes lead to behaviors like reacting to somebody's dirty look by thinking that they're being aggressive towards you and that you need to stand up for yourself and, and react with violence. Um, maybe that look wasn't actually meant to be aggressive or hostile. And um, sort of taking a second to, to think that through uh, and check, you know, am I making assumptions? Uh, what if I do act violently? Is that the right thing to do right now? What are the long-term consequences of that? That's sort of right. the type of thing. And so what do we know about how well an approach like CBT works? So this program that I described, Becoming a Man, uh, we uh, tested it. Um, we tested it the way that you would test the efficacy of a new drug. Worked with the Chicago Public Schools to find schools that might be interested in the program, and then worked with the schools to find uh, to determine uh, kids who they thought might benefit from it. There wasn't enough funding to be able to serve all of the kids in the schools who might benefit from it, so we worked with the schools to randomly select from among the kids who might benefit. Randomly select some kids to be offered the chance to participate, and other kids uh, were uh, randomly selected to be a comparison group. That allows us to measure the effect of the program as an, in an experimental setting. And uh, we've studied, we've done that uh, a couple different times. Um, and in both times we found dramatic reductions in violent crime 
rates, violent crime arrests uh, for the participants in the program as a result of participating. Uh, on the order of uh, 40 to 50 percent declines in violent arrests uh, during the year that they're in the program. Right. It's a, it's a powerful effect size for the type of intervention you're describing. I mean, it's maybe worth pausing here to, to unpack a little bit more about how difficult it is to implement something like this. I mean, you described the fist exercise, which is kind of one type of element, but how, you know, how long do these programs tend to last? How, who are the sort of people administering it? How much does it cost? If we were to sort of consider doing these types of things, what, how much should we anticipate the burden of implementing it? Look, what would that look like? Yeah, so this is something, it's a great question. Uh, so this particular program, Becoming a Man, was developed by, as I said, a social service agency called Youth Guidance. There's an agency in Chicago. And they do the implementation. They've developed ways of uh, selecting uh, and hiring the counselors, training the counselors, they've written the curriculum, they implement it. It requires the school district to be open to them coming into the school and working with kids during the school day. Programs meet about uh, uh, once a week, and um, so that during that period, the kid will be will be allowed to leave a regular class that they would have been in. And so the you know the school has to really want that pro the program to exist and be willing to um, adjust the schedule essentially and allow these kids to adjust their schedules. Um, but it, you know, uh, youth guidance has been doing this in Chicago schools for several years. Um, are continuing to do it now, and it, it is something that can be implemented. It does cost money. It costs, um, I don't remember the exact number right off the top of my head, but somewhere in the order of a couple thousand, a little less than a couple thousand dollars per kid per year. Um, and, you know, we've done, we've done analyses to measure how the benefits from the program compare to those costs, and, uh, you, know, we, you know, there are benefits from reduced crime, benefits we also see improvements in schooling outcomes and in fact the kids who were in the program the, the first year that we studied it uh, enough time has passed to see whether they graduate from high school and we find that they're uh, almost 20 percent more likely to graduate from high school and there are huge benefits to kids in the long run from graduating from high school uh, versus not and so if you add up all those benefits to sort of uh, the monetary value of what those benefits are going to be um, to compare those to the cost, we find that the benefits are somewhere between six and 30 times as big as the cost. So it, it costs money and it, right. it requires um, buy-in and, and, uh, and some interest, certainly from the schools, uh, but it's something that I think in the long run can, can pay for itself if, if you know, it can be implemented in the way that it was implemented in these studies and, uh, and um, you know, has those same effects going forward. Right, right. So you also talked about match tutoring as another sort of approach. What is that? And similarly there, what do we know about how well it works? Yeah, so match tutoring is, a, uh, is an individualized intensive math tutoring program that happens in school. Um, so that's sort of a mouthful. But it's, uh, it's an in-school math tutoring program that, that uh, happens um, in addition to a kid's regular math class. And um, the basic motivation for it is that in a regular classroom uh, kids have varying levels of math knowledge and that makes it very hard to uh, deliver instruction or uh, for the teacher to individualize instruction that sort of meets kids where they are in terms of their knowledge. 
And so um, I know as, as a professor myself, when I'm teaching an economics class or a statistics class, there's a wide range of prior knowledge of economics or statistics um, in my classroom, and that makes it very difficult for me to figure out where I should target the instruction. Should I target it at the kids who have never seen statistics before, or should I target it at the kids who have already done it uh, for a couple of years? If I targeted the kids who have never seen it before, the kids who have already done it get bored. If I targeted the kids who have done it before, then the kids who haven't seen it before feel like I'm speaking another language and it's hard for them to keep up and also they can disengage. So, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do in the classroom is try to teach on different levels at the same time to be able to keep everybody engaged. And that's a challenge of teaching, and it gets more challenging as classrooms get bigger. So if you have a class size of 15, maybe they, that's a little bit more manageable. If you have a class size of 30 or, or even more than that, that becomes harder, especially if there's more variation in kids' knowledge. And so what match tutoring does is it's a way of solving that problem um, by setting up a program where kids come into a classroom and there are two kids and one tutor sitting at a table. There's 11 of those tables, so there's 22 kids and 11 tutors. But from the standpoint of a kid, a kid will be with a partner, and those, uh, that kid and the partner will work with the same tutor every day for a year. And that allows the tutor to meet the kid where he or she is in terms of their math knowledge, and deliver uh, instruction and give them math problems that are at a, a place where they're actually able to do them, and then that gets the kids engaged, and then also it allows the small uh, student tutor, tutor ratio allows the tutors to uh, advance uh, as quickly as the kids are able to learn. So the kids aren't stuck at some low level just because they started at a low level, they can catch up. And you know we've studied that also as a randomized evaluation um, for a few years and found remarkable positive results of that program as well. Found uh, increases in math performance uh, on standardized tests on the order of an extra one and a half to two years of learning, uh, of math learning in a year, above and beyond what the other similar kids uh, learn in a, in a regular math class. Right. Well, so what do you, these are both the example of CBT match tutoring are, are powerful for the potential that I think you're starting to see from some of the studies you have. What do you think is coming? What's, what, what are the next things on the horizon, both in terms of questions maybe that we need to try to answer? Another direction you might take this could be in terms of taking the findings we have to date and thinking about how to scale them. Like, what is it, what is it that we should be thinking about next as we're sort of digesting the results that you have and now reaching decisions on what do we do? Yeah, so uh, the question of how do you take results from you know, promising studies that happen at a, a large scale for a study, but small scale relative to the big social problems we're trying to solve. How do you go from that to large scale? That is, that is very much in my mind and, and exactly what we, me and my colleagues are trying to figure out the answer to and learn about. So I think that, uh, I think that's the next, that's the, at least what I hope is the next big step is how can we, how can we learn from this type of research? Uh, what types of programs can scale really well? And uh, to the extent that 
programs might have trouble scaling, what are the what are the barriers to that? So, for instance, in the match tutoring program, um, if they're you know tutoring at a scale where they're tutoring about a thousand kids and have about eighty something tutors, um, is it effective because they were able to find eighty five really amazing people mm-hmm. who were just the best eighty five tutors out there? Uh, in which case, if we said to them, by the way, we have a, a bunch of funding and a bunch of other school districts that are interested, can you give it to 100,000 kids? Mm-hmm. Um, would they have trouble finding tutors who are as, quite as talented, and therefore would the program not be as effective? Or is there something about the program that uh, means that you know, there are other people out there who are similar to the tutors that you've hired, where if you had to increase your hiring, you would get other people who were, you know, just, were able to implement this program in just as effective a way, in which case if you scaled it up to 100 times as many kids, those kids would get a program that was about the same as it was on the scale that we did it. And that's exactly the type of thing that we're trying to design experiments to learn about without actually having to implement something mm-hmm. for 100,000 kids. Right. Um, and that's, you know, those are... I wish I knew the answer to the, that question right now, but that's exactly what we're working on to try and understand. Because what we really want to do is is not just learn the answers to you know does this program work or does that program work. We really want to help provide cities with um, evidence that they can use to make smarter decisions, uh, and so that they can make cities work better for, for people and and uh, solve big social problems. And so. You know, in order to do that, the research has to not just be informative, but informative in a way that cities can actually use them. And so that's that's sort of what we're really focused on. Right. Well, let me so let me end with giving you the platform of: Is there a question that you wish that I asked you that I didn't, or anything else you want to sort of comment in before we wrap it up? I think you did a great job. I don't. I don't have any questions. <laughs> That's a very good answer. Thank you. Uh, well, well, John Garant, really appreciate uh, your time here and also the presentation that you gave at the lunch at DC earlier today. Thank everyone for joining. And if you haven't signed up for the lunch at DC, you should do that. You should go to lab.dc.gov, and we have many great speakers like John that'll be coming in, and we look forward to the next conversation. Thank you. Thank you.